0: This is MC Fireside Chats, a weekly show devoted to the outdoor hospitality industry, hosted by Brian Searle and Kara Sismadia. You'll hear from special guests that focus on topics to help your business succeed, all backed by Modern Campground, the most innovative news source in the industry.
1: Welcome everybody to another episode of MC Fireside Chats. My name is Brian Searle with Insider Perks here as always with Kara Sismadia from the Canadian Camping and RV Council, as well as Angela Hilton, the Editor-in-Chief of Modern Campground. Super excited to bring you another open discussion show. Happens the first Wednesday of every month. We've got a couple guests that join us regularly. Some are having internet issues this morning. Randy Hendrickson's on a plane, so we're shuffling them in and out. We don't know where Casey Cochran is either. He's supposed to be here at some point too, but as always, we'll just roll with whatever we've got. So. Karen, and I like to have fun and change it up and just cause chaos whenever possible, or maybe that's just me. I'm not sure, but either way, super excited to have everybody here today. So what is going on in the minds of everybody with the industry today? I know we've been in the midst of kind of RV show season. We touched on that last week, but Quartzite, Angela was down at Quartzite for a little bit. I know Sandy was at the Florida RV show. What are we seeing as far as the interest goes in RVing outdoor hospitality is using those as a measuring guide so far? whoever wants to start.
2: Yeah, I'll jump in. So January, traffic at campgroundviews.com was up 123% year over year. And that was on top of a massive jump year over year for, for that year. And why that's important is last month we spent $0 on paid advertising. So that was all organic traffic into the website for that jump. So what that tells me, we also did a survey of the members of the site here recently and we're working through that data right now. What's interesting is that there's a lot of fear or worry about budgets and increasing prices it's not impacting our industry yet like people still want to travel and are still going outdoors and i was actually working on a theory of regarding it last night and it's it goes back to why people camp in the first place and it's an escape from the insanity of the normal day and i think that's just accelerating gas prices are a billion dollars, food's gone through the roof, we're still going camping. And I think we're going to see that this next year continue on. And so it's just an interesting data point following on. And Sandy, I'll, I'll let you jump in here because you were at the, the Tampa show. The excitement's off the charts. Just people wanting to go camping.
1: Before before we get to Sandy, though, like where are you yeah. paying a billion dollars for gas, Mark? You need to move out of that ritzy wood neighborhood. So area. my
2: brothers in my brothers in Southern California, and he always sends me photos of the gas station. He just paid five oh five for diesel in California. So not a zillion dollars, but it cost him several hundred dollars to fill up the RV as it, with that gas, and it's enough to where even my brother sending me photos of that. So. That affects bicycles are healthier. We got to
1: make a push here for the outdoor hospitality (laughs) industry. We can just rent them from the campgrounds. Everybody can go ahead, Sandy though. Seriously. How how was, uh, you said you were talking to us about the Florida RV Super Show and how it was amazing and you had so much fun and you have tons of energy after it.
3: The show was amazing. They broke all their records. On Wednesday, the highest number on the first day historically was just over 12,000. And on Wednesday we had over 23,000 unique people come through the gates. So that kicked off the show in a big way. Even industry day on Tuesday, we saw much higher traffic than what we saw with people visiting and talking to each other, coming over and saying, hey, are you experiencing the same thing that we're experiencing? So industry day was great. Every other day, we had two really bad weather days and it was on Saturday and Sunday. But what was interesting was while the the traffic seemed to be more organized. It would be very empty when the sun was out and very full when it was raining. It was still very consistent. So it was great. I got to meet with several of the parks and several of the park association CEOs. All of them were saying that they were still seeing huge traffic. One of the normal booths that's always there ran out of material. Wow. He said I've never run out of material. And it's a lot of the very popular states, he ran out of material to give out by Sunday. Wow! So to me, that says people still want to camp.
2: Sandy, who was the audience that was there? Did it was it a, a bunch of new people? Was it existing RVers? What was your take on that?
3: I got stuck in a booth most of the time, and so we were in a building. And but for our traffic, I would say the largest majority of the traffic this year especially on the the days you would expect it, like Wednesday through Friday, were seasoned RVers, people who had already owned one RV and were or had owned multiple RVs. Saturday and Sunday, again, it was very similar to what you would expect in that we had a lot of looky-loos, people who had never camped before and just wanted to walk through the rigs, people that were actually looking to buy for the first time, and then people that were still new. Saturday and I don't know, Saturday and Sunday again was a rainy day and a cold day, so that could have impacted that, but I would say 65% of the traffic were people that were already campers looking to upgrade, trade, do something different, but they were buying. Every vendor I talked to said we had a great show, so people were buying.
1: Awesome. That's fantastic news. Uh, Angela, what did you see down at Quartzite? I know you weren't there for too long, but...
4: I don't know if anyone else on here has been to Quartzite. I will say it is the most unique RV show
0: I've <laughs> ever
4: attended in my life. Um, <laughs> I was going maybe, in... Maybe it excited. did it
1: sound like Burning Man. They just kind of <laughs> set up tents everywhere and they just do whatever they want to I, do.
4: It felt like a little bit of a breeze. There were a lot of people there. It was definitely well attended. But it was very... Sorry if you guys can see dog in the background, but it was unique. I've been to, I think Brian and I went to Pittsburgh and Boston and I grew up going to RV shows. And so it was, honestly, it was difficult to disseminate which units were ones that vendors were staying in, which ones were people that were boondocking and which ones were actually part of the show. So it, but yeah, overall, it was a good turnout and I didn't, I honestly, I didn't get to talk to a lot of people that were actually working the show. because they were a bit difficult to find so it was very unique i don't know has anyone else ever been to that show that can maybe you share a similar experience to my own this guy is
1: scott's nodding like knowingly down there so i feel <laughs> like he has been or he knows somebody
5: yeah I've it been, is it, it, do you hear that echo i'm sorry
4: you're fine oh, we're good. i don't hear okay. an echo.
5: just on my end which that's okay but you're right it's it's practically burning man for our rv parks no, it's so interesting to see how people boondock and set up all over the place and the different types of vendors and that are there so it's a it's an interesting show i'm glad you got to experience it
4: <laughs> yeah it's uh definitely a once in a lifetime for sure how about you mark did you sounded like maybe you've been there before
2: yeah i've been there i'm um, we went through with our rv one year and it was we were at that time i felt like we were the youngest people there by about 20 years So it's a little bit. It's an older audience that goes there. But mascot noted the big thing there is the boondocking out in the desert and. That's a big trend, obviously, impacting our industry. It always has because RVs are self-contained. But what's happened is that the manufacturers are addressing that too with solar and, and the battery system. So It's just it's good to see people out there using their RVs. And the other thing we heard about Quartzsite this year is there's a lot of new RVers there. So a lot of people going for their first time to that location to experience it. It's just one of those cool events. It's definitely different than Tampa. It's totally different. It, there's nothing like Quartzsite. I think what we're taking away from here is there's a ton
1: of interest. There's a ton of activity, yep. whether it's organized or unorganized. Organized. Obviously, we all know shipments continue to go up and they're through the roof. Ruben, what are you seeing from the glamping side of things? Obviously, totally different, but still the same as far as outdoor hospitality. Are these vendors starting to catch up with some of the orders? Are they
6: still overburdened? Or yeah, I th- oh, can you guys hear me okay? Yep. Yeah. No, I think it's a very interesting uh, time of the year when it comes to to the glamping world, kind of the hybrid glamping camping helper world. And I've unofficially. Dubbed 2022 as the year of development, just because not a day goes by where I don't hear just medium to large scale development. It's just, it really has been aggressively record setting, I think. But so now it, at this time of the year, when it comes to development lens and development landscape, everybody's just trying to get up and running, whether they're expanding on their initial property, or this is year one on their property, April is a big milestone for it. So as you look at February march everybody's up against this timeline of things that just weren't really predictable right any type of development it's either going to take longer or is going to be more expensive than planned and usually both and so now they're up against delays that they hit and so i'm just seeing a lot of mad dashes to the finish line everybody trying to put on finish the global logistics and manufacturing distribution network and the disruption that has happened has really set a few groups and, and projects behind and, and there's always a solution, but they're trying to figure out what what they can do to cut off a few days or a few weeks off of their development time. So I think right now, as you know, I look out my window and I see seven inches of snow in, in certain markets, people are, are looking forward to that first day of season opening and a lot of expansion has happened, a lot of new properties away. And so Therefore the next two months are just this mad dash of finishing touches with development. And so we get a lot of calls of, can we get help with this or that, or our contractor left or, you shoot and forgot about insurance on, on this. Just anything and everything that happens to be the end of the list really seems to be front and center for,
0: yeah. Yeah. I could to say, that's uh, an
6: interesting topic too. Go ahead, Kara, please.
1: Yeah. We're just yeah. left.
0: Yeah. I was talking actually with a supplier member yesterday who's actually working with us to sponsor for the upcoming Canadian conference. And he was mentioning that all those issues, they have tons of product kind of in the shipment process still. And so he has campgrounds while they're waiting for those, purchasing other model types and whatever they can get their hands on to get them in on time, which is great to see for them. But yeah, it definitely, I think speaks to, it's a perfect storm of... issues and timing and all of those things right now. So it's exciting. I'm happy to hear there's lots going on, but it's nice to get to the other side of some of these hurdles for sure.
1: Yeah, it's definitely the time of year where development kicks off and, and, and is going at a, at a 900% pace and probably it's 1800% or 2600% now that we're going through this pandemic with the extra, or we're coming out of the other end of the pandemic, right? With the extra interest in outdoor hospitality and the hedge funds and the big money flowing into campgrounds and RV parks and glamping and all those kinds of things. I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts on, uh, obviously, just sticking with the development trend for a second, right? There's There are people who are developing glamping only units or working with or glamping only parks are dealing with Ruben are people developing campground only accommodations combinations with RV sites. And that's about it, whether it's long-term or short-term, how do you decide as an owner, do I want to do clamping? Do I want to do camping? Or if I'm the harder question is if I want to do both a mixture, how do I decide how to slice and dice that when both things are clearly in such high demand? And me, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll jump into that because it's actually very timely with where
5: I'm at. I'm at our property in Coos Bay, Oregon at Bay Point Landing. And talking about the uh, development timeline and some of the cabin supply chain issues that everybody's fighting, we've had a new line of cabins that we're going to be launching here that's been uh, in development for eight months or so that we've been waiting for these to arrive and they're finally going to be here in uh, March or April, it looks like. So we're here staking out exactly where they're going to go. But this property is unique in the sense that we, it's physically bifurcated between a glamping, uh, boutique accommodation side and a luxury RV resort side. So these are, it's one property and two totally different experiences. And what we've done here over the last few years is looking to understand the demand in the cabin offerings that we have, which cabins make the most sense to continue to add in. And we've been doing that over a span of two or three years where we've, we're starting to take over more RV sites with these cottages. But there's a way to to do it at the same property. But it takes a lot of work to understand exactly the different types of guests that are coming to stay with you, knowing that the accommodation side is, those folks are often very different than the RV side. And how do you build an experience that works for both? So we've just, just to recap, we've, we continue to take a conservative approach to what the data drive. How many cabins we add and when, and how and what type of cabins we add and what rate points. But we have the luxury of being able to keep moving into additional RV sites with these cottages.
0: Yeah, we'll I would have. An order go ahead. From an owner standpoint, I think yeah, there's a ton of market research and one step work that has to go into what kind of the answers to those specific questions is. Can I? How many? units should I consider and all of those things. And I, yeah, I think it can be tough. I think we see, I've worked closely with lots of campground order members who kind of approach that really slowly and add a unit or two and then see how that goes. And so it's a couple year long process. I have a member here in Alberta who initially added, converted two of their RV sites over to cabins and they did so well that he frantically added 10 more and, and, So his park used to have 50 RV sites and now it only has 20 because he's got 30 cabins technically on the property and they're doing really well. Sometimes it takes a little bit of trial and error (laughs) too to, to test the waters for sure. I think there's lots of variables, location, and like Scott said, there's an experiential component there for sure. Something else that I was just talking
4: to a client about um, a week or two ago, we're working on a website for them and their goal is to ultimately be an MH property, but they have had such a hard time getting their units in that they're like, we still have other bills that we need to pay. So we need to start generating some revenue. So they are converting some of the sites they have spent pads down and things like that. So they're converting some of that into RV sites in the meantime to help pay some of their other bills while they wait for their units to come in until they can start um, supporting the property. Um, as it's intended to be. So I thought that was a spot to be in too.
5: And with how delayed everything is in the supply chain, you have to be thinking a year, 18 months out down the road and trying to gauge your occupancy and demand that far out, which thankfully we're in a time where that's easier to do. It's a real balancing act of, of adding in as demand proves itself, but knowing how far out things are too, trying to get ahead of it. It's a challenge.
3: I'd be interested to know, Kara, with your park that you were talking about and the transition from cabins to RVs, are they transitioning those cabins and they're being used for transients or
0: or are they being used for seasonal and long-term? They have no seasonal sites in their park. They're all short-term stay. I think they have a minimum two-night requirement on their cabins, but yeah, no, this is a unique park. It's actually, they're a zoo. And they added an RV park in the center of the zoo. And and so they have a really unique dynamic where I visited, we visit there often. We have a whole several of our meetings there per year. And you're in the zoo and there's like animals, lions roaring and stuff. But there's an, a really unique experience that they're offering on top of that. But those cabins for them are, are so popular. They're they're looking out long in advance. They're seeing, they're doing great stuff around motivating people to book midweek and stuff like that. Yeah. Short-term.
3: Yeah. I love hearing that. I don't want them to be unique. I want them to be an example of the consistent. Every park is doing this. Yes. Yeah.
1: Here's a question from Leslie that Mark had shared with us in the chat there. Do you find that cabins that sleep four or more are booked more? We have two cabins now that sleep two and adding larger as cash comes in. Anyone want to weigh in on that? Probably Scott
5: would be the best sure yeah it really depends on the property and your guest demographic generally we find that having the flexibility to have cabins that can sleep four to six allow you the ability to attract those families and that's always the safest route to go we find generally but there is always an option and way to build an experience around your cabins that are designed for for couples or single people that may be looking to come stay with you too so Perhaps you're look. You, you should assess maybe how you've positioned your cabins and some of the marketing messaging and branding around those two person cabins and reevaluate, or perhaps ways that you can sell an experience as to why you should come stay with your significant other, or just yourself on a solo trip in that cabin, but on a go forward basis, units that can sleep four to six are generally the safer way to go.
1: So here's something that interests me, and, and it's probably a question for Ruben. We talk a lot about, and especially me coming from the campground industry for so many years, we talk a lot about these existing campgrounds who are converting and adding cabins or glamping units. And we talk about the glamping-only properties that Ruben deals with on a daily basis. Ruben, is there any demand from glamping-only properties to add an RV site or two? Does that go in
6: reverse at all? Yeah, that's a good question. I think there's more, the short answer is that there's more and more an appetite and a demand for what we're just calling mixed unit properties. And it could be glamping plus anything else. And I think at the end of the day, it's really about what the host feels is going to be, or the property owner is going to feel is going to work in their market. There's plenty of examples of camping only that do really well. And that's exactly what's perfect for that area. Countless examples of RV only, same situation, countless examples of glamping only. And countless examples of the mixed unit type. I think the challenge with the mixed units is just making sure that it makes sense and that the the property isn't trying to do too much because at the end of the day, if you say, great, we've got glamping and RVs, you don't have the experience to back it up, right? If you're expecting a little bit more remote and then you've got a bunch of RVs that are there, or you have RVs, but you're expecting more amenities and it's not there, it's what we find in, in, in that world and also in the mixed unit properties is making sure it's very clear what you're getting and what you're not getting because nothing is worse for the customer's experience when they think something's going to be there and it's not. And so when that's clear, we're finding that the, these mixed properties are, are functioning really. There's a level maybe on a road trip, they pull up an RV and they say, oh, next time we'll come here and we can camp or we can, Lamper or vice versa. They see that there's a different product offering, but the caution there is, is when it looks a little bit too busy or confusing, or there's gotta be an operational execution to it. It's what is this and what isn't it? And I think the majority of the reasons why people don't end up executing that is purely upon capital resources and then the permitting aspect, right? Maybe they're permitted to do one aspect of it, but not the other. And it just gets complicated because they feel comfortable in one end. So I guess long and short seen, we're seeing more and more of these types of mixed prop, but it does come with some caveats. And I, I, I wouldn't say that most people are trying to stick to one or the other. It just really, and my favorite Mc2022 word is just depends. Somebody asks a question and it's it depends. I need more information on it. And I think that's definitely one of those questions of Yes, it definitely depends.
3: I was just going to say, I think the key to what you said, Reuben, and you're singing my song, is that parks need to know who they are, and then they need to set the expectations of who they are appropriately in their marketing, and that way you don't attract people to your park that are going to be disappointed.
7: Yeah, yeah. I yeah. mean, think about it, think about it logically. To oh. some extent. If if I don't have an RV or a travel tra- travel trailer, camping to some extent is a family activity to some extent, right? So. If I don't have an RV, I need an alternative, <laughs> option. Right? I have to have some sort of other option. Whereas even if I have a travel trailer or an RV and safe families going to a certain location and there's no RV spaces available, there's no spots available. Would that person then be willing to rent a cabin? Typically they would. If you look at a mix of inventory, if there's only RV spaces available or trailer spaces available, and I don't have a trailer, I can't go to that campground Even if the rest of my family is going this, maybe I have a rent one or something like that. So. Even you look at like lodging, we see just a massive increase in 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 cabins and things of that sort. Just because logically it makes sense because it can accommodate any camper. Even if you have an RV or trailer, you could still stay in a in a cabin in in that type of.
1: Maybe this is worth exploring a little bit and i don't know obviously if we can solve we probably can't answer the question and solve the problem during one single episode or even many episodes but one of the things that i've seen i had a client the other day come to me and, and say we're going to open up some hotels in addition to the campgrounds that we're doing and can you get me specific data that this hotel chain normally provides to us as far as a competitive analysis of other area hotels and the revenue that they're bringing in estimated wise and some of the other metrics that some of which I can get, and I understand how to do that from a competitive analysis, public Google search, whatever standpoint, but some of them aren't really available to the campground sector yet. Is there a way that people can, in your experience, gauge some of those stats to help determine some of the things that we're talking about, both from an occupancy, pivot, accommodations type, RVs, seasonal overnight? Is there a resource that's out there that's
2: reliable in the campground sector yet? I would say that one of the way, one of the ways you could do it, there's not a reliable resource that you can just go reference as an Excel spreadsheet, but there is a way to get that type of data and it's simply through um, reading, not so much Google reviews. If it's an RV park, I would actually re- send you to like RV Life's campground reviews. And the reason I, I would send you there is they basically have been around for a decade collecting reviews on campgrounds and RV parks. And so you can go through those reviews and you can see when the review was posted, when the person stayed, what type of unit, they had and they actually read those reviews about their stay. What well, place is crowded. It was empty. They, they, you're going you're gonna to get insight from that. So you could actually glean a lot of information from that. It's not in an Excel spreadsheet. It would re- require a lot of work and a lot of time. But you can actually learn quite a bit just by reading the history of reviews on a property like that.
1: So I think it's, from my perspective, and sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt to Scott, if that was you or just on a lag, I think from my perspective, like I got, I understand how to do reviews. I understand how to, I do, right. And I could share that with, we share that with clients. I understand how to compare reviews. I understand how to compare social posts to a certain extent, how to compare analytics that are publicly available from websites to do comparisons of demand in Google searches. But are there things that help you understand, is that RV park near me 78% full or 96% full or guess on how much revenue they made last year and their different types of apparently the hotels are providing this data, or at least the larger chains are to some capacity.
5: Yeah, you're exactly right. So there's the star reports as it's known in the hotel industry that hotels can participate in and most of them do. And by participating, you also are able to tap into some of that data on occupancy, ADR, and piece together the revenue assumptions. Nothing like that exists at all for our industry, unfortunately. Now... That's not to say that it won't one day soon, hopefully. And I'd love to connect with someone to talk about ways that we might be able to do that. Because right now, at least in our world, and just from our experience, we have to do boots on the ground, old school research of trying to visit properties at different times of the year in the market that you're at and to assemble some of that data. And it's archaic at best, but there's really not, there's unfortunately not a uniformed way unless you're a camp spot and have 1,600 parks.
2: Well, (laughs) Scott, there's some consultants out there that'll do that work for you. And I've read some of these reports and you've probably read them too. And they'll do a location. There was a funny one. It it was located in um, the Ozarks at a high elevation, an area that actually gets like snow in the wintertime. And they showed the occupancy in the middle of winter at being like 75%. I was like, they can't even get an RV up there. Why? So you see projections like that in our industry. Have you seen reports like that? And what are your thoughts around that?
5: Yeah. No, totally. Yeah, there's feasibility studies that are done that again, they're looking from their desktop analysis, unless they are actually flying to one of our, one of our associate companies, horizon land development does those feasibility studies. And they actually fly to the area at several points during kind of this, during the year, if they have the availability to do so to inspect occupancy. Otherwise there's really not a way to do it at this point, unfortunately.
1: So let's ask the $10 million question then. Right in your mind, Scott, this is obviously valuable with the value of those reports from the hotel industry, and it's valuable to you as a management company development arm side thing of whatever, right in your mind, how does this get started in the hospitality industry? Does it start with an association? Does it start with a KOA Yogi LSI? Does it start with a Sun? How does it get there? A camp spot?
5: It's a good question. And I hate to keep saying camp spot, but they have so much data. Uh, that could be so valuable if their, you know, property owners were able to opt into sharing that information and in return, getting some of that, that information as well. At the end of the day, sharing information amongst, uh, amongst competitors is in, in terms of a park basis is helpful for everyone to see where, where we're at and rising tide lifts all boats. And so if we could really understand what each other are are doing, we could help position each other for success. But maybe, maybe Sandy, I saw her nodding her head. She might have some ideas too, and how to tap into that from her side.
3: Yeah. So there has been a commission developed and brought together that's been in place for about a year that has already started going down this path and beginning to test. It's really interesting because when you start out aggregating all this data and right now it's just anonymous data. There's no identification of where the park is, but it is categorized by the zip code. What's interesting is there's so many things in the RV industry that skew your percentages that don't necessarily happen in the hotel industry. And so, for instance, we've got a significant number of parks and they're only open six months out of the year. If you take them and apply their occupancy rates 12 months across the year, and then you look at it by region where there's a lot of other parks that are also it makes sense, but if you cross it across the United the entire United States or by park type, the numbers become very skewed. So we started doing some research where we can allow parks to check the boxes for the months they're open. Those months are then being taken into consideration on some of those calculations. And the goal will be that by the end of 2022, This will be an open report available to any park to submit their numbers or create an API, depending on what software they're using. Sometimes we can pull that. But it will, I think by the end of 2022, we'll start seeing it. And it'll, of course, the next year will be, again, another experimental year where nobody's going to trust completely and totally these numbers. But there are a number of leading people in the park industry that are actually going to be overseeing this and helping to make sure we tweak those numbers.
0: Sandy, can I ask, how do you get uh, valuable, measurable participation? Like, I have, we have a couple of uh, significant data collection strategies underway here in Canada, and it's like pulling teeth to get campgrounds to share anything with us. Yeah, you, have to,
3: you have to create the win-win proposition for the campground, and a lot of it is education. There's, they don't know what they don't know. And they don't like being treated as if they are stupid. And they're not. They just don't know what they don't know. And so my approach with the parks, and especially I usually start at the association level and work down. But my experience has been if they understand why you're doing it and then what they're going to get out of it and why that's important to them, they're much more willing to participate. The other thing is always to start with some of your more... um, Parks that are willing to be a little more flexible, they're already doing things right. And so to target the right parks to begin with, because everybody's watching those parks and they will then follow their lead if they see the results happening. So now I think by the time 2022 gets here, enough of the parks, of course, they're not allowed to talk about it right now, but enough of the ones that are participating, when they begin to talk about what they've seen and how they've been able to increase their revenue and things like that, other parks are going to fall right in because they're going to be afraid not to be a part of it.
1: Sure. And yeah. I'll like to volunteer as a beta tester and I'm sure Scott would, will, would yeah. as well. So,
3: <laughs> yeah. I actually reached out to Scott in the beginning of all this and we both, we never connected in time because I really wanted his parks to be a part of this.
5: Yep. Let's reconnect because it's absolutely what our industry needs. And there's so much in, institutional money coming into the space that will require something like this. So it's, it's timely.
3: Yeah. The most amazing thing for me this past six months or a year has been that the industry is finally realizing how important the campgrounds are because prior to COVID, if you talk to any manufacturer or OEM, which is like the Winnebago's forest rivers of the world, if you ask them if the campground industry was a part of their industry, they would say no. And if you ask the parks, if it was important to communicate with the manufacturers, they'd be, no, what are we going to learn from them? And COVID showed us how important it was for not only us to be communicating, but to be proactively capable. And on the industry side, it showed them how important it is to help invest in some of our parks. Because without them and without their support, we've got really great small mom and pop parks that can't afford to do some of the things that they need to do. But with the sponsorships coming from the industry, we're able to accomplish those things.
7: Yeah, I can speak a little bit to it. Obviously, I mean, we, every park is protected from, like in kids as far as their data, right? Like their data is theirs and theirs alone. So there's very, there's to some extent we came out with the, like the 2021 kind of state of camping report, which was our first <clears throat> stab to some extent and saying, what is some very generic data that can't be pinpointed to any one park or or whatnot, just because that data is protected and that's something that's very critical and very important to us and should be that that data is protected and and, and as it should be. But I think, again, I think what Scott said and what Sandy's saying is important and it's buying the campgrounds that are willing to participate to say, yeah, we're willing to share these specific things about our park. And if we can make, look at them holistically, whether it's by region, whether it's by zip code or whether it's by. U S via Canada versus North America in, in that regards. Yes. I think there, there is some options there. It's a matter of piloting something and getting an understanding how many, how many parks, right? And yeah, we we're fortunate to work with a lot of parks. How many of them are going to actively say, yes, I want to participate in this because it's going to benefit me. And I think there's a lot of mom and pop parks that are like, I could care less what the occupancy is in San Diego. Cause I'm in Louisiana like that. I don't I could care less. But it's a lot of these bigger groups that are saying this is really important data for us to figure out how much to expand or how much to where is a new location that we could open up another campground or where's some land that we can convert into something else. And yeah, I think as we as the industry grows and, and as we it, it comes down to the parks. If they're saying we want this, and then there's enough of them that want that, and they're willing to say, Yes, I'm I'm signing off from this type of data, then there could be something there. But I like what, what you're doing there too, Sandy. I mean, if you can look at it from like an agnostic standpoint and say, Hey, the parks I want to opt in throw it in there and then it's going to throw something out generic and it's not tied necessarily to one reservation system. It's more so to the parks that want to participate. This comes down to volume. It's that fun number. How many parks is it to make that data relevant? Is it, is it 500 parks? Is it a thousand? Is it 2000? What number allows someone like Scott or one of these other groups to say, I trust that number. I trust this data to start making some decisions to where you're going to say, okay, I'm not going to do, I'm not going to do these flowers or I'm not going to go in and, and physically check some of this data, I'm going to trust this, it'd be interesting to see what that number would look like.
1: Well, I think it's a rolling downhill effect, right? In multiple different ways, it's getting enough data for the, guy, for the small mom-and-pop camper in order to not have to look at San Diego, but looks at something that's closer and more relevant to them that impacts them meaningfully. It's a, a Scots group or something like that, where they can look at those different areas like you're talking about. It's it's just having that kind of impact on education in such a robust way that you can start having that data that's that's more relevant. And, and what Sandy's doing it's, it's admirable. It sounds like it's going to work. But I think it also maybe needs to be led maybe by an association to the point where if your association is telling 200 members or more, in you know, Kara's case, 1,500 with Canadian Camping Interview Council, then all of a sudden there's more trust and more scale and more education happening all at once instead of one by one.
3: Yeah, yeah just to be clear, I'm not doing that. I don't have the financial wherewithal to do all that on my own. <laughs> I just get to participate. That's awesome.
1: All right. What else is going on in the industry that we can talk about? I think uh, we got Casey on here from Camp Spot and Kara's on here from the Canadian Camping and RV Council. Is there anything that you guys want to talk about?
7: We're excited. We're excited to to support the the show that's coming up. We're really excited about just the volume of parks in Canada and how we can help facilitate what we think is going to be a really big, cool show with a lot of valuable information. And, And we've always been a big component of the the state associations and the different the groups that we think is just vital to this industry. It's incredible the amount of questions that we get asked, like during setups from parks that just generally are searching desperate for information and knowledge and the, the associations like Care is doing, they, they provide that, like they're so willing to provide that information. You now we're excited to, to support those industries and, and those associations. Cause again, I think it's just, it's, it's just so important to this industry.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I we can't thank Campspot enough for your, your support a second year in a row now on the, the conference. We're really obviously can't make stuff like this happen without that kind of support. Continually grateful for all of that. And also super excited for some of the stuff Campspot's bringing to the table for the Ned too. We've got conversations in the works for some great sessions and workshops and, and a ton of cool education stuff that you guys are going to help us with. Lots of things in the works right now, exciting stuff. So of course, again, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We appreciate
7: it. Yeah, I think one thing you could get going, Brian, is a a little survey. I'd be really curious to know this in in general. How many parks, and Mark, your group would be a perfect Sith for this as well. Like how many parks go to shows to make some of those critical decisions? As a vendor, Brian, you've been through this too. You go back and forth like on these, right? Of course, you want to go there to support things, but you also want to get some sort of value. And it's, it's interesting to know how many parks are using that to help make decisions for us. We look at it from two lights and it's, we want to be able to support the, so I should say 3 Want we'll to be able to so, uh, support the associations. Of course, you want to get new business, but we also, it's a good opportunity for us to connect with current customers and just and reconnect, see how things are going, get feedback, feature requests, all that good stuff. And so for us, we look at it as a, you know, kind of a holistic, holistic thing, not just a marketing thing, part of it's a retention thing. And part of it's just staying plugged in the industry. But I'd be curious to see like what parks, some sort of poll. Are you going to these shows to actually make critical decisions on your park? Or is it more so I'm just going to check things out? Because, you know, you can, someone might not be looking to switch or change anything or buy anything and then they go there and then all of a sudden they do. And th- th- that happens as well. But yeah, I'd be curious to see what, you know, what what those numbers look like. That'd be pretty vital information.
1: Yeah, I think, I think oh, it would be. Very valuable to connect from an association standpoint and, or reconnect, right, with some of those association leaders. Because I'm of the same mindset, Casey, at Insider Perks and Modern Campground now, but more so Insider Perks, that, that we go for those same three reasons to show. So we want to support the association and, and help them continue to grow in whatever small way we can. We obviously want to get new customers. And like you said, we want to connect with existing ones. But and again, I haven't been to a large show since pre-COVID partially because I'm up here in Canada now uh, and I haven't had a chance to cross the border back again, but it's interesting of that mindset that kind of started to settle in with us at least is that we've been going to shows for so many years in a row that we still get the occasional new customer. We definitely reconnect with people. We love supporting the associations, but there's that perception that the same people are coming to the same shows over and over and over again, which is great from a brand exposure standpoint, But if they've already seen me and said, that's not what's right for me, at what point do I attract new people? And I think that's where virtual is really appealing to me because different people from all over the country are choosing to attend one year over the other year or different times or different days. And it's not the same people because it's not the same expense. It's not the same clicks. It's not the same owners hanging out with each other who already know each other. So I think virtual has an opportunity and eventually hybrid, right, to change Mm -hmm. that. Kind of demographic and reach for suppliers like us.
4: A part of what I we we some of it, push... a... sorry, I'm so sorry, <laughs> I think
0: some of it is <laughs> right, You go. Okay, part of why we pushed forward with virtual was because we surveyed diverse last year and asked for feedback about their feelings about it, and over sixty percent of, of our respondents said. I, I want it, I prefer it to be virtual. Some of them said I have to attend in person, but a lot of them said I, I'm simply not gonna come to an in-person event, but I'm happy to attend when I don't have to travel and leave my business and or and whatever else. So lots of them have are running other things in the off season for their from their campground or whatever else. Some of them go to Arizona for the winter. Like they just the feedback from attendees was overwhelmingly in support of of the virtual uh, platform which was surprising to me, frankly.
3: And I think a lot of that, Kara, comes from just how busy the parks are. It is so (laughs) hard for them to get away from their parks that they are weighing the balance of the value of staying at my park versus the value I get at the conference, and they're not seeing it. It's not enough. So, I'm sorry. Of the major uh, conferences that I've been a part of and helped with and seeing those exit um, surveys Most people say number one across all of them, they say they're there for networking with other parks and yet very few conferences give any opportunity for that. The second thing they say is that they're there to check out all the PMS systems at one time because they don't have the time to get on the phone all in one day if they're in their office. And if they do hear this one next week, they forget and then they all just blend together. But year over year... Choosing the right PMS software resonates across all of them. So I don't know about anybody else, but Casey, you need to be there.
7: <laughs> I'm, there. I'm there. I talk to till, till I can't, can't talk anymore. It's like <laughs> dating. What is this? You got 10 minutes to impress them, when you're like, okay, what can you guys do better than other ones? like, I don't know. I'm going to like long walks on the beach, And you know, to
3: get together and figure out how we can do it all at one time with one, one conversation and not have to be groundhog's day all day long. <laughs>
7: Yeah, it's it's hard because of the big decision, one, but two, I mean, it's running everything at the park to some extent, as much as I like to say that's feasible, every reservation system, to some extent, you need more than 15, 20 minutes ultimately to hopefully you do, to, to show the full capacity and what specifically that park needs. There's certain feature sets that certain parks, they don't care how much money the software will make you. They care about one specific workflow and if it doesn't have there, nothing else matters and sometimes you need to get to that root to understand that to say that regardless i need my grid to be this color if it's not this color i'm not choosing this software that's a poor example but it's it comes down to that sometimes where it's just very specific things and ultimately it can, it can be overwhelming because there's a lot of software companies now it is somewhat of an underserved market for a while where a lot of campgrounds were hesitant to embrace um some of this online aspect of things and such a growing and, and open industry to some extent, you, you can see why, but yeah, it is. It's The shows are great and you kind of got to have like your firepower. Well, what can you do better than everyone? Regardless of what you're saying, there's probably four other software saying the exact same thing. So essentially at some point you got to get in and look at it and see everything that each software can do and which one's going to benefit your park. It's because there's there there's better software for different parks. It's, it's as simple as that.
3: And we still have 50% of our car choosing software that is Client-server desktop software, and as an industry, we have to solve that problem because the thirty-eight percent of the new COVID campers that come into the market, if they can't find it, they can book immediately and get a confirmation online at midnight at night. They're going to bounce out of camping.
2: problem. Yes. Well, and, and that kind of goes to what Casey was mentioning. There's an education gap there for some park owners who who aren't necessarily tech savvy and they feel comfortable with the old school systems and are and are unwilling to switch and one of the big objections casey could probably correct me on this is somebody who's looking to make that switch is they're worried what's on the cloud what happens if the internet goes down right how would how will i be able to take reservations if the internet goes down and so there's just that that tech gap there and it's it's a big one i I, there's a reason why i'm not working with casey on software sales or anything like that it's got to be a nightmare business just to try to do it because it is so complex and the needs are so varied, and that's why there's so many different service options out there in the market. And so it is something that is a problem for the campers, though. So let's stop and take it back from the industry. The campers, when they go to book their experience, they have to go to 15 different sites to book that experience and then manage it through all those different um, portals that they've made those r- reservations through. And for the camper, that becomes an issue. So it's just something that we can't address. We can't answer it here on this call, but it's something that n- will need to be addressed over time. If this industry is going to continue to grow.
7: It's funny because I was late to this call, having a conversation with the park. They do 9,000 reservations and like 6,800 of them they do um, and they, they don't want that change. They are what we want to take those. And I'm going, no, you don't, no, you don't. You don't want to take that many phone calls and uh, no, yes, we do. That's just, that's the, our clientele here. They want to call. And I'm like, no, they don't. I promise you. They don't know. They don't know otherwise because I'm like, who wants to call the book their flight? It to, no one wants to do that it, it doesn't exist but it's interesting because this is even still somewhat of a i would say more progressive part has embraced technology in in some capacity but yeah i don't know if it's an education thing or if it's if you just try it you'll realize how much time and how much you know labor it's education would how be yeah yeah
1: exactly. it's education and experience like i did the same thing it's now i was going to go up with my girlfriend to stay at like a hotel north here for a couple of days just to get away and i the tiny little hotels that aren't the chains in the middle of nowhere. I'm having to fill out a request form and we'll get back to you in 24 to 48 hours. And it's a hotel. And and, and it's obviously not a campground, but that's that frustrating experience I'm going through and I'm seeing, here's your price check availability leads you to a form where I have to call somebody and it's frustrating. I don't do that. But until you know that there's an alternative out there, until you as a consumer or a park owner have experienced the ease of a camp spot or an RDP or an Astra or whatever, uh, then I don't think you know what you're missing. Ruben, what are they using in the glamping industry? Is it a lot of crossover? Or?
6: Yeah, no, I think that's interesting where there, I think there's a very, there's a lot of similarities between the campground hosts, RV parks and, and glamping owners where they have, their people are set in their ways and change is tough. And I think the universal theme is hosts, no matter what, have to wear a lot of hats and because they're wearing a lot of hats, they're not going to be good at some of them. And there is a consistent theme that marketing and just when it comes to any type of booking software, booking integration, technology in general, we across all outdoor hospitality, but definitely in glamping, people don't get into glamping, they get into glamping so that they can be. The host and welcome people and do the design and sit around the fire and meet interesting people and do that process. They don't say, you know what? I can't wait to do contracts and I can't wait to do integration and I love APIs. APIs just give me going. Like nobody, totally, that's not why they do it, but they realize that they just have to do it. And so I, I think that's a universal <laughs> theme across all of these hosts: is that something has to fall um, short, and the marketing and technology tends to be one of those and any it, it doesn't matter what kind of business owner you are you kind of fear change and if you've been doing something for a period of time when somebody comes in and says i promise you this is going to save you time it's going to save you money let's do it let's make it as easy as possible there will be still a consistent reservation of well God, i don't know i don't know you at all and so i think that's why it's very helpful across when they hear from a, from a OTA standpoint or from a technology standpoint, you could give them all the free integrations. You can give them everything on a silver paddle platter free and they still won't do it, but then they hear their friend down the street who's got another similar business has that technology and they recommend it. They're all, so I think there's a trust factor that's really big.
4: I think it comes down to both on the owner side and guest side. It is just education overall, educating the park owner, why they need it, how it's going to save them time, how it's going to make them more money. Everybody's resistant to things that they aren't familiar with. Going outside of your comfort zone and feeling vulnerable, nobody likes that in personal and in business. And I think from the consumer side is for a really long time, they didn't exist. Or if they did, they were really awful and nobody really liked to use them. And so some of it is just retraining how they communicate with you and how they make the reservation. So I, my parents are pretty tech savvy. And my mom last summer was like, oh, I need to call this park before I make a reservation. And I was like, no, you don't. I was like, please for the love, do not call that park and bother them during peak season to make, to ask them questions before you make a reservation, like just book it online well, I mean, I know, but I'm like, no, like it's there for a reason. They want you to use that method for a reason. If you can answer your questions by looking at the information on their website, that's why they're providing that to you. And so some of it is just old habits die hard. And so some of it's just retraining that. And I know a big concern of campground owners is if I go and use the system or if I raise my rates or do dynamic pricing, what kind of kickback am I going to get? What kind of feedback am I going to get? And the majority of the time, they're worried for nothing. And you do get those occasional people that are like, Oh, I can't believe you switched to that. And they'll still call, and that's fine. But a lot of people, they don't know that it's an option until you provide it to them. And then once you do, they're grateful that you have. And now they don't have to call you all the time. So yeah. it's just retraining that behavior.
7: The best education we can try to give to parks when they talk them through this is ultimately just saying, Have you looked online? Honestly, have you, have you looked online to see everything we have available is there? And, and I'll take this reservation for you now, but afterwards, why don't you go ahead and just check it out just to show, see how easy it is. Because again, I hate to go back the same example, but why would you ever book a flight by calling? And and so even when the people say older folks, Mark put this and it's a good call because I hear it every day, older folks only want to call. They don't want to look online. And I would say to that, older folks are, they're more savvy than you, they've booked a flight before and I guarantee they did not call. And wait online for, for three hours for Delta. They've done things online. I guarantee they got their Amazon prime account and ordering stuff next day all the time. So it's not like they're that far up, but in this industry, in this space, they're like, how are they going to know that I have a slide out? How are they going to know that I you know I have a 32 footer? how are they going to know that I need 50 amp? How are they going to know that I need this? It's those things that you need to educate the customer on that. Hey, we have our entire park is ready to go. And, and you're going to get exactly what you're looking for. You can see it all online. That's the education of the customer. Not they're not comfortable looking online. It's the fact that they can have confidence that what they're bringing to the park is going to fit. That's
1: a two-step process, right? That's educating the customer through the frequently asked questions section of your website or answering or writing good descriptions of your cabins or your RV sites and what they include and what they can fit and where the trees are. And if you have satellite reception and if your cell phone's good and all those kinds of things, but also then collecting that data from a reservation standpoint to asking the question, what type of rig do you have? Not just brand, but how long is it and how many amps do you need and how much whatever else? And so. I think it's education on both sides, but it's also education from a perspective of like the campground needs to understand that there is something out there that's perfect for them. And many times it's going to be camp spots. Sometimes it's going to be Astro. Sometimes it's going to be RDP. Sometimes it's going to be something you never heard of. Or I answered a question in one of the groups the other day where I said, your web developer can, can build you a, a system where you can rent bicycles and have them return. To-. Like I know how to do that. And it's completely customizable for your park. In most cases, it's not worth the extra time and effort to have a developer do it. But if there's nothing out of the box, there is a solution for you. Just don't know about it. It, well,
2: it. And it's interesting as a marketing services provider, to Casey's point and some of the other conversation here, there's always an objection uh, with the unknown. And so we actually have done this in the past where we've had a, we've had a small park actually run by a, a gentleman who was in his 80s, very skeptical of technology, said, this, th- these virtual tours, ain't going to work. And I said, tell you what, I guarantee it. If it doesn't work, I'll give you your money back. In fact, I guarantee you'll double your money in the first year. He made a 10x on his money in the first three months once we implemented our, our technology. And so once that happened, he's telling everybody in the world about it to Ruben's comment that this is the greatest thing since sliced bread. But now we have to deal with their objections because it, it's the same cycle again and again. But point being is that there are technologies out there that are changing the game. The biggest thing that, that we know about consumers in general is they don't read. Everybody who has rules knows nobody reads the rules. And so part of that is understanding your customer and presenting them information in a way that they do want and in a style that they are looking for. There's a data point out there that 73% of affluent campers will book immediately upon seeing a video. And yet, if you look across campground and RV park websites, the majority of them don't have videos. And so just something, there, there are all these techniques and tricks out there. It's just a matter of moving the ball down the road to get folks to that level of technology. And then once they get there, they'll look back and just think they're crazy for not doing it before.
7: Yeah. We're starting with images and you're talking video, which is awesome. But we're saying like, just have a picture of your park in general. Like it just, yeah, to, any, park. Come
6: on.
1: yeah I
7: mean, it's or just a description. give us four words about that describes your park in some capacity. Yeah, high-def video. You're going to
1: get for video, Mark. Like, when you're 80, you're going to be so busy that you can't retire and stop. You're going to be doing 50 times the work that you are now. It's just going to take them time to get there. We're capturing so,
2: 4,000 parks this year. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. yeah. So, yes, I'll, I'll be working till I'm dead.
1: I think we're almost out of time here. Is there any closing thoughts anybody has? I don't want to distract too much, but I do want to point out that, Mark, there's this great pull-apart cheese bread that, that isn't sliced. And so when you say the best thing since sliced bread – I might have to bet the (laughs) difference with you.
2: Thank you for that, Brian. Brian's always good for amazing feedback and guidance. He he drops in ideas that I'm just like, that's the best idea ever.
1: Pull apart cheese bread's a pretty good idea. I'm just saying. (laughs) Anyway, do we have any closing thoughts that are related to outdoor hospitality that we can provide some value on before we wrap it up for today? Anybody? We're a month away from spring, everybody. Awesome. I think somebody else had a comment. and sure, what's
3: that? What's that domain name again?
0: I was just going to stay with all this easy bread talk. All right.
6: Well, thank you guys for joining us
1: for another episode of MC Fireside Chats. We really appreciate you joining us here in this open discussion panel. Never know where it's going to go. But I think we had a really good discussion today. We started off with our RV shows and focused on that. And then we wrapped up into this whole glamping discussion and and it just provides a lot of value for people. And that's what we want to come in with it with. Not a set plan, not a, we know what you want to hear, but what's relevant what's timely and See where it goes from there. So, we will see you all back here a month from now on our next open discussion show. Me, myself, Angela, and Kara will see you next week. Where we'll have a few more guests. And other than that, we're available on a podcast. You can listen to us on Apple, Google, all those kinds of things. We will see you next week. Take care, guys. Thanks, guys. Bye. Thank you.
0: Thanks for watching this episode of MC Fireside Chats, hosted by Brian Searle and Kara Sismadia. Have a suggestion for a future show or want to see your campground or company as part of an episode? episode? Email us at hello at moderncampground.com. Join us next week for another episode. And don't miss the latest outdoor hospitality news and commentary from around the world at moderncampground.com.